You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Will the Antichrist be a Roman? I am about to argue that, despite what many of us have been taught, Scripture does not teach us that the Antichrist will come from Rome. Nevertheless, I do believe that he could come from Rome, or a European Union type of organization, but my point is that while it is possible, I hope to demonstrate that it's not taught in Scripture. I'm not sure if Scripture tells us exactly which kingdom or kingdoms the Antichrist comes from, other than it will be a nation or nations with ten rulers, three of which he will subdue on his way to power, Daniel 7. I do think that this nation or nations is outside of Israel, and probably in the west, because he fights with kings of the north and south, as well as people from the east in Daniel 11:40 But other than that, I don't think we are told exactly where it will be. It should also be mentioned that even if I believe that the Antichrist will be a Roman, it would not detract from the thesis of this book at all. A Jewish leader could rise in the ranks of an organization such as the European Union or almost any other nation, especially if he is as skilled as the Antichrist will apparently be. So, to restate the initial point, though I am about to explain why I don't think Scripture teaches that the Antichrist will be a Roman, I don't see any problem, theologically or otherwise, with the idea, and I would not be surprised if he did come from a European nation or coalition of nations. There are three places in Scripture that people use to propose the idea that the Antichrist will be Roman, Daniel 2, 40-49, Daniel 7, 7-28, and Daniel 9, 26. While there are other passages in Scripture that reiterate that a tenfold leadership will be a part of the Antichrist's home kingdom, these are the only passages which are used to suggest that the ten-king nation or kingdom which he comes from will have characteristics of the ancient Roman Empire. The first two passages, Daniel 2, 40-49, and Daniel 7, 7-28, should be considered a set, since they are essentially combined to formulate the revived Roman Empire idea. At the heart of the revived Roman Empire teaching is a tradition that Daniel 2, which details a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar of a statue made of many metals that symbolize successive nations, Rome being the last of these, is a mirror image of a vision given to Daniel in chapter 7, in which he sees four beasts coming out of the sea. The last beast that Daniel sees in his vision is clearly the kingdom of the Antichrist. So they reason that if the last empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is Rome, then the last beast that Daniel sees, which is clearly speaking of the Antichrist kingdom, must be Rome. There is no indication in scripture that we are supposed to assume that these two chapters are speaking of the same events. And in fact, there are a myriad of reasons that are selectively overlooked by commentators which strongly refute this idea. There are many scholars with a wide range of prophetic opinions that reject the notion that Daniel 2 and 7 are describing the same thing. Some of these include G. H. Lang, Jeffrey R. King, David Pawson, Charles Cooper, Henoch Ben Kesset, Dr. Noah W. Hutchings, Dr. Henry M. Morris, and Irving Baxter, Jr. In addition to the argument that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are essentially the same, the revived Roman Empire idea is suggested because of what I believe is a misunderstanding of Daniel 2 regarding the last part of the last kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream, the feet and toes of the legs of iron. Debunking these two ideas, which have given us the concept of the revived Roman Empire, will take some time. 
I think a detailed study of Daniel 2 and 7 is required to fully understand that this view is not taught in Scripture. Because including that study here would make this chapter over 13,000 words long, when the average word count per chapter is about 4,000 words, I've decided to include an exposition of those chapters in the appendix section of this book. If you're interested in such a study, I would encourage you to check out the appendix now and come back to this chapter after you are finished. A note to anybody that's listening to this, you can check out both a video, audio, and text version of those two expositions of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 in the show notes of this episode, which will be posted on 3-19-2014. The People of the Prince to Come There is one other verse in Scripture that is used to argue for a Roman Antichrist, and it is found in Daniel 9.26, which says, And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. In context, this verse is a prophecy of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. It is almost universally believed to be a prophecy of the destruction of the city and temple by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. This word prince in the phrase, the people of the prince to come, is often taken to be speaking of the Antichrist. In other words, it would be saying something like, There is a prince to come far in the future, the Antichrist, but he won't be around at the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, only his people will, and they will destroy the temple. Therefore, this is often taken as a way to determine the nationality of the Antichrist. Most people who hold to this view see the Antichrist as Roman, since the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It should also be remembered that if indeed Daniel 2 or Daniel 7 isn't speaking of the so-called revived Roman Empire, then this verse would constitute the only verse in the Bible that suggests a Roman nationality for the Antichrist. I don't think this verse is talking about the nationality of the Antichrist, or anyone else's nationality for that matter. Though it should be noted that I do think that the Antichrist is in view in the next verse, and therefore my opposition to the normal futurist interpretation is not because I'm not a futurist, I certainly am, but it's only because I think that there is a much more logical explanation for this verse. When it says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, I believe it is trying to convey what actually happened in 70 AD. Titus's people, that is, the people under his command, destroyed the city and the temple, not Titus. In almost any other sacking of any other city by the Romans, there would be no need to make this distinction. After all, if Titus or any other general ordered this to happen, he would be responsible for it, and Scripture would be right to put the blame on him. But the events of that day made it necessary for Scripture to describe the destruction of the temple and city as not being by Titus, but instead by his people. According to Josephus, who was literally present and part of the court of Titus at the destruction of the city and temple, Titus did not order the temple destroyed. He had wanted to turn it into a temple for the Roman gods, but his people destroyed it anyway. It would be one thing if this were only briefly mentioned by Josephus, but instead Josephus describes in many ways the mob-like destruction of the temple and city, despite Titus's repeated orders for the destruction to be stopped. I will quote a few excerpts. First, Josephus quotes Titus in a meeting with his generals about what to do with the temple. This was because the Jews were using the temple as a citadel for a kind of last stand. Josephus says, 
But Titus said that although the Jews should get upon that holy house and fight us thence, yet ought we not to revenge ourselves on things that are inanimate instead of the men themselves, and that he was not in any case for burning down so vast a work as that was, because this would be a mischief to the Romans themselves, as it would be an ornament to their government while it continued. Then, after Titus was informed that despite his orders, the soldiers set fire to the temple, Josephus describes the following scene. And now a certain person came running to Titus and told him of this fire, as he was resting himself in his tent after the last battle. Whereupon he rose up in great haste, and, as he was, ran to the holy house, in order to have a stop put to the fire. Then did Caesar, both by calling to the soldiers that were fighting with a loud voice, and by giving a signal to them with his right hand, ordered them to quench the fire. But they did not hear what he said, though he spake so loud, having their ears already dimmed by a greater noise another way. Nor did they attend to the signal he made with his hand, neither, as still some of them were distracted with fighting, and others with passion. But as for the legions that came running thither, neither any persuasion nor any threatenings could restrain their violence, but each one's own passion was his commander at this time. And one more quote says, But the flame had not yet reached to its inward parts, but was still consuming the rooms that were about the holy house. And Titus, supposing what the fact was, that the house itself might yet be saved, he came in haste and endeavored to persuade the soldiers to quench the fire, and gave the order to Liberius, the centurion, and one of those spearmen that were about him, to beat the soldiers that were refractory with their staves, and to restrain them. Yet were their passions too hard for the regards they had for Caesar, and the dread they had of him who forbade them, as was their hatred of the Jews, and certain vehement inclinations to fight them, too hard for them also." Moreover, the hope of plunder induced many to go on, as having this opinion that all the places were full of money, and as seeing that all around it was made of gold, and thus the holy house burnt down without Caesar's approbation. So I think if scripture had said that the prince, that is Titus, destroyed the temple, it would have been a factually inaccurate statement. But instead it said the people of the prince destroyed it, which I think you can now see why that would be an important distinction to make. The words to come, as in the people of the prince who is to come, is therefore from Daniel's perspective, as this prince was almost 500 years in the future at the time he wrote. But for us, looking back, that prince to come has already came and gone. A note on this Hebrew word for prince. Though the word can mean general, leader, king, or indeed a literal prince, as in a son of a king, it is interesting to note that at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, Titus's father, Vespasian, was the emperor, making Titus a literal prince, who would soon become emperor himself, as well as a general of an army. This means that Titus would fulfill every possible meaning for the Hebrew word prince. The argument against this idea would be that the next verse, which is talking about the Antichrist, starts out with the word he. They would say that the he must point back to the prince in the previous verse, but there are significant problems with that idea. The verse says in Daniel 9.27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. There are really only two good possibilities from a grammatical perspective about what the antecedent for the he in verse 27 is, though you will likely not hear either of them in a commentary on this passage. The possibilities you will hear from most commentaries will be first that the best antecedent for the he in verse 27 is the prince to come of verse 26. This will be told to you by the average futurist, and though I don't agree with them about the grammar here, it should be noted that I do agree with the reason they are trying to make this claim. That is because they think that this last verse is a future event, and the person who we are about to read about is who we call the Antichrist. 
The other possibility you will hear is that the antecedent for he in verse 27 is the anointed one of verse 26, i.e. Jesus in their view. This is usually put forth by preterists, and despite it being nearly impossible from a grammatical perspective, they put this forth because they believe that verse 27 is not a future event. It also puts them in a precarious position by having to defend why Jesus would do the horrible things that the next few verses say that this person does. If one were to just consider this verse from a grammatical perspective, and not a theological perspective, one would have to conclude that the people, as in the people of the prince to come, is the antecedent for the he in verse 27. I will quote from a study of this passage that brings this point out. With regard to the above passage, the subject noun is people, the ones destroying, and the parsed Hebrew word shikath, he shall destroy, is used as a Hebrew hiffle verb imperfect third person masculine singular, and is completely acceptable in Hebrew with the use of the singular subject noun people, whereas the translated word people in the above passage is implied to be acting as a single unit. Therefore, a single noun and not a plural noun receiving a third masculine singular verb. In addition, the Hebrew word shikath must also be translated as he shall destroy, and not simply shall destroy, unless the he is either implied or articulated, written or verbally spoken, because the Hebrew word shikath is used in this passage as a Hebrew hiffle verb imperfect third person masculine singular, as in the people of the prince that shall come, he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Therefore, if the subject noun in the above King James Version et al., passage is the singular people, and indeed it is, and it receives the corresponding third masculine singular verb, he shall destroy, then by legitimate Hebrew and English grammatical standards, who must the he of Daniel 9.27 be, and he shall confirm? Does consistent contiguous grammatical standards dictate that the he of Daniel 9.27 by the same preceding antecedent singular subject noun people, the ones destroying, or can we simply arbitrarily choose to substitute a different subject noun in the place of people, in this case the coming prince? They conclude this study this way. Once again, any attempt to substitute an alternate and arbitrary subject noun, a coming prince, for the he of Daniel 9.27, even if we assume a theoretical gap, other than a clearly grammatically defined antecedent, people, the he of Daniel 9.26, is to simply ignore all Hebrew and English grammatical rules merely to fit a theory. If we're going to go down that slippery slope where we ignore grammatical rules and standards simply to fit our theories, then there is little hope of ever arriving at the truth of Scripture. In other words, they're saying that if the he of verse 27 is supposed to look back at anything, it must look back to the people. But the problem with that is it makes no sense. The people can't be referred to as he because people is plural and he is singular. This brings us to the last good possibility for the antecedent for the he of Daniel 9.27. There is none. I wrote former Moody Bible Institute professor Charles Cooper about this, and this was his response. Quote, This is what I am convinced the text is actually intending. The he of verse 27 does not have an antecedent, which drives scholars mad. They force the Hebrew to say something I don't believe it intended. The he of verse 27 does not look backwards. It points forward to a character not identified in the previous verses. This has caused many problems. It will continue. I believe that the he of verse 27 does speak of the Antichrist, so I have no reason to argue this point other than the fact that it is wrong to say that the prince to come in verse 26 is also referring to the Antichrist. The he of verse 27 just comes out of nowhere. But, as I will suggest, we are given all the tools we will ever need to determine who the he is, because literally every aspect of the he here is described by Daniel in at least triplicate in other places in his writings when referring to the Antichrist. 
Many people, including myself, have come to the conclusion that there is a gap of 2,000 plus years between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel 9. Many who do not believe that such a gap exists are told that people believe in a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks for silly reasons. But I believe there is no other option but to see the 69th week ending at the second temple destruction and the last week beginning after another temple is built, an event that as of March 2014 has not occurred yet. If this is true, then it would also explain the out-of-nowhere nature of the he at the beginning of verse 27. That is, it comes out of nowhere because the context of this verse would be far removed from the previous verse, chronologically speaking. It is not as if the he would be unrecognized, though, as Daniel seems almost fixated on the Antichrist figure in Daniel 7, 8, 11, and 12, describing in detail his actions. So we are not left to guess as to who the he is in this verse. In conclusion... There are only three passages in Scripture that suggest that the Antichrist will be a Roman, and while that idea is not harmful to the thesis of this book in the least, I feel that if we are to be the best watchmen we can be, we need to see that the modern interpretations of these three passages have serious problems, and there are much better, more hermeneutically consistent alternatives. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.